0: all the way at the bottom of the page the very last paragraph on the page Omer Haseichel and the intellect now addresses the soul and says the following thing Behold we all witness different orders and different laws that God conducts himself with us. Anachnu Nivrav, us, those that are created by him. Midos, we see certain characteristics or attributes, udrachim or and certain paths. Sadikim, that hopefully we have the insight.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, page
0: 62 on top, I'm sorry. Okay, we'll do that again. And the intellect says, Hine anachnu behold, we see, chukimu mishpatim, we see orders and laws, ashahu misnaig manu, that God conducts himself with us, anachnu nivrav, us who are the, the created beings of God, midais, uh, characteristics or attributes, of drachim and paths tzadikim that hopefully we see, the righteousness of them, all these things are paths that the depth of God's wisdom determined. To the point that because of these characteristics, he chastolay tayarim we, um, give God all kinds of different descriptions and adjectives. And we find the precedent for this in all of the writings of our prophets. The of Karanu, and because of this we call God Rachum. That God has compassion, that He bestows uh, loving kindness, He's powerful, Harabim and many other adjectives which are all attributed to God. It is important to realize and to understand that all of these descriptions of God are not descriptions of the essence of God. Now let me explain where, what Rav Chaim Letzata is saying. And I'll have to give a little bit of a historical background so that we should be able to appreciate where, where Letzata was coming from, why he made this statement, and then we'll try to apply it to ourselves as well. Where Rav Chaim Letzata was coming from was the following. But Moshe Chaim El lived in a historical period of time where there was the slow um, revelation, the slow um, coming to the surface in literature of a lot of ideas that up to that point were hidden in the Kabbalistic writings, in the mystical writings. And obviously, when these things began coming to the surface... There was a lot of uh, misinterpretation that was made by that. Why? Because much of the Kabbalistic writings and much of the mystical writings were written purposefully in 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 symbolisms, in analogies, in examples. Um, the reason for this is because it was it was understood. It was, it, it was purposefully done this way so that those that were ready for the learning of the mystical teachings those that were ready for it would be able to understand the sim- symbolisms involved and the analogies that were involved and wouldn't take everything literally while the ones that weren't ready would be baffled by it and would let leave it go so this was a way of revealing it but at the same time it, it wouldn't become exposed to those that weren't ready for it. And much of the, of the Kabbalah is written in such a way, with symbolisms. Because the Kabbalah was written with these symbolisms, the following two things happened. First of all, the, the, the fact that all of these things were coming to the surface and they were being exposed, and all of a sudden we were getting deeper insights into secrets, this automatically attracted a tremendous amount of interest. It attracted a tremendous amount of interest on people's part. Everybody wanted to know the real reasons, the deeper reasons, what's really going on, what's the plan, what's the behind the scenes of everything. There's a natural tendency for a person to know that. But simultaneously with that, people began taking it all literally, and because it was taken literally, all of a sudden we started defining God and his ways and the different things that he was doing in very human kind of ways. The same way that I act, God acts. The same way that I exercise an attribute, God exercises an attribute. The same way that I'm overtaken by an emotion or I'm swept by an emotion or I'm motivated by emotions, God is motivated by emotions. And what began happening was we began in this pursuit of the deeper knowledge, we were all of a sudden creating a very humanized God. And uh, unbeknownst to ourselves, well, (coughs) unbeknownst to what we were doing, what we were actually doing was we were measuring up in terms of trying to understand God. We were using ourselves as the model or the rest of humanity as the model. So for instance, if, if there was a description of God as being compassionate, I would close my eyes and I would imagine a moment in which I was taken in by a, a, a feeling of compassion and I said, ah, that's the way God is feeling now. And when I got angry, so I said, so we're, for instance, something that God is doing is described as God being annoyed. So I said, yeah, it was like I was annoyed yesterday morning uh, when the person didn't deliver the coffee on time and and so on and so forth. And what happened actually was that because of the symbolisms and the figures of speech that were all from this physical world that were taken literally, what happened was that man was beginning to relate to God as another human being. Yeah, he's God, his name is God, and uh, and he's in control and everything else, but in many, many ways unbeknownst almost to myself, what I was doing was I was relating to God almost as a peer. The way that I function, He functions, is what turns me on, turns Him on, what turns me off, and how we turn on and turn off. This is all part of that. And this was a tremendous danger. Not only did it happen, but there were those that wrote major works identifying God in these kinds of terms based on the, on the Kabbalistic writings. Lozado happened. Lozado had a very interesting life, I must tell you, because Lozado was criticized for bringing much of this writing to the surface. And were it not for the fact that he was instructed to by his, in his writing his letters to his teacher, he said that he was instructed by Elijah the prophet to bring these things to the surface. His rebbe didn't, his teachers didn't really agree with it because they saw more danger than good in what was going on. But Lozano devoted an entire work called Kenas Hashem Tzavakos, the uh, standing up for the honor of God. And the entire work is dedicated to disproving all of the misinterpretations that were made in his time of a lot of the Kabbalistic writings. And in there, he talks about the distinction... We take questions at the end. In the, in the, he talks there about the distinctions... He talks there about all of the differences that they made, how they took it and how they humanized it and how they got it down to such a level and where all of the mistakes were. I'll give you an example. Okay, I'll give you an example. And you might might be wondering, I I don't live in this age, I don't learn the Kabbalah, I'm not going to make these mistakes, so why is this discussion important at all? I'll show you in a little while why this discussion is very important. But before we get to, to showing why it's important, let me just give you an example. There's a concept of the Esser Spheres, and you're not going to get an explanation from me because I have very little to say about it because I don't know too much about it. The concept of the Tenth Sefirot, which basically is energies of God that show themselves when they come into this world in different attributes. Right? Different energies of God. Now, there's uh, a lengthy discussion in the in many of those that misinterpreted the Kabbalah that these sephiros, that these energies of God are energies that God sends out and once they are sent out, they operate as independent forces in the world. They come from God, God puts them into into action and once they're there, they become ten dominating forces of the world. They become separate from God. They're not connected to God. God created them, established that His world should function with those ten attributes, and now the world is completely controlled by those attributes. They become the, the godly forces of everything that happens in the world in terms of the conducts of God. That's a major mistake. Because in, in, in the, in, in Jewish principles of belief, there is no such thing as any force acting or operating independent of Hashem. And the real concept of a Svirah is a constant nurturing and a constant giving, almost like a flow of electricity from Hashem, into that which becomes particular conducts. Very similar to the sun that gives off rays, and depending on what it hits, it shows up in different colors. Similarly, it's all energy that comes from Hashem, but depending upon how it reaches the world and what it reaches in the world and how much how much of it is constrained and not constrained, it becomes different conducts of God. But never for a moment is it ever uh, cut off or divorced from the mitzios of Hashem, from the existence of Hashem. And to say that it is is tantamount in real Jewish principles is very close if not in fact kfira heresy because then it's already believing in independent forces and it's contrary to the whole concept of Hashem Echad the concept of Hashem's oneness now that's one particular thing and the Kines Hashem Tzvakus dedicates about the first ten pages of that book just to disprove from many different places that mistake now, because Lazaro lived in, this, in such a time, and he's writing this kind of a book where he's going to begin discussing many different things that God does in his world, in the world of service, in the world of reward, and we're going to be describing God in many different ways, so what Lazaro says is, I want to step back for a moment before we get really into the discussions of God's attributes, and I want to make one major introduction. I don't want anybody reading from here to the end of the book to make the mistake of all those that misinterpreted the Kabbalah and humanized God. I don't want that mistake to be made. And he's beginning to to discuss the nature of that mistake and what is the authentic perspective. I will get soon, if this is boring you, I'll get soon to show you why this is so important for us as well. But that's where he's starting from. Okay, now, let's move ahead and let's begin the discussion and then we'll go back into the text. Rabbi Shachayim Litzata starts off and he says the following, he says the following, to describe God, the essence of God himself is totally futile for man to do to be able to to analyze and to say, I know exactly what God is, what He's made out of, where He comes from, how He functions, the extent of everything that's going on, the essence of God, I know. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lassata says, that's the first mistake. It is impossible for a human being to really understand the essence of God. Why is that impossible? The reason why that's impossible is because God is a total spiritual concept. We, after everything is said and done, though we have con- contact with the spiritual realms, we do have all of our interpretations and our associations and our comparisons and distinctions in the physical world. And therefore, any kind of definition that we would give to God would be colored by the fact that we live in this world with the physical associations that are so bound up with all of the categorization, with all of the limitation, with all of the boundaries, with all of the different ways in which in which they work. Let me give you an example of this. Let me give you an example of this. A couple of examples of this so that we should at least understand what we don't understand. Let me give you a few examples of this. You don't get people usually explaining things so that when you finish the explanation you don't understand but Maimonides says in the Guide to the Perplexed a very fascinating thing um, Maimonides says in, in describing God Maimonides says that after all of the descriptions of God we come to realize that we can't describe God and and that is in fact the praise of God that all of the human attempts to describe the essence of God we get to the point of realizing the ultimate of all that knowledge is that we come to grips with the fact that we really don't understand and comprehend but let me give you some examples of this let me give you some examples of this and one of the ways of giving this example, I'm going to use a certain, a certain example which might have a, a certain morbid tinge to it, and I really don't uh, intend to do that. But even to have an example of what the essence of God is, we have to take something from this world in order to do it. So I'm going to take the neshama. I'm going to take the soul of man. Because after everything is said and done, King David says in Psalms, that there are uh, tremendous similarities between the essence of God and the essence of the soul, the essence of the Nishem of the human being. <coughs> the Gemara says, and it's a halacha, that after a person passes away from the world, one is not allowed to, in the presence of the deceased, one is not allowed to perform mitzvah. Well, one is not allowed to perform mitzvahs in the presence of the deceased unless it's directly related to his to his funeral, to his burial, to his honor. And the reason that the Gemara says for this is because the soul of the deceased has a consciousness of everything that's going on in the room and knowing that people in the room are performing mitzvahs and it can't perform the mitzvahs anymore because it doesn't have the physical vessel with which to do it. This is a tremendous anguish for the soul. So in order to avoid giving pain to the soul... that that has passed away from this world, we do not do mitzvahs in the presence of the deceased. This is what the Gemara says. Now, there are many implications to this halacha. There are many, many different things that we can learn from this, and this is a, a class for itself. And I'm not going to go into that right now. But one thing is clear, that we see with our eyes, we hear with our ears, we touch with our hands, we smell with our noses, we speak with our mouths, and in the physical sense of how we function, everything is departmentalized. Everything has a category. I relate through sight. I relate through sound. I relate through smell. I relate through touching. And for each way that I relate, and I'm communicating or I'm, I'm getting information into myself, where does that information come from? It comes through specific channels. The ear is one channel that's designed made by God to pick up sound. The eyes have an emblem made by God. They pick up light. Everything picks up something else and everything has its particular channel. How about after a person dies? The Gemara is not saying that the eyes work and the ears work. Those things don't work. That we know medically doesn't work. So how does the person have the ability to see what's going on in the room? How does the person have the ability to hear what's going on in the room? How does the ab- person have the ability to feel what's going on in the room? So the answer that the Mepharshim say, that the commentaries say is that it's not the ear and it's not the eye and it's not any physical part of the p- person that really onto itself has the ability to do what it's, what it's built to do. It's because the person has a neshama inside and the neshama goes into the eyes and gives the eyes the function of sight, goes into the ears and gives the ears the function of sound, and so on and so forth. So the Nishama is a form of electricity, and going into the different parts of the human being, then each part of the human being translates that energy in a particular faculty of man. But what's the Nishama onto itself? The Nishama onto itself is a ball of energy that sees and hears, and smells, and touches. The neshama is an essence that has all of the faculties without any of the departmentalization, without any of the categories. Once it goes into a physical human being, then it works through. It can work through. It normally works through the physical channels of the human being. But the nishama unto itself is a yodeya, and a roe, it knows, and it sees, and so on and so forth. <coughs> This gives us a little bit uh, a, a sense of the, the the tremendous difference that we automatically come to realize that when we're talking about God, God doesn't look at something the way we do. He doesn't hear it the way that we do. You know, we come into this world and we gain knowledge. As we, it's external and it comes into us. We learn knowledge. God's, God's knowing isn't something that he learned because God was here before the world. So God's knowing is completely different than our knowing. Our knowing is that there's external data and the external data becomes absorbed into us. By God, God's knowledge isn't external data that becomes absorbed into God. God was here before any of the external data to, began. So the whole form of God's knowledge is a totally different form. We learn things. We absorb things. By God, the learning process is not learning something which is external and bringing it in. God's knowledge is a different knowledge. What is it? It's even hard to imagine. What, what does that mean? A knowledge where you're not absorbing. An, uh, a way of knowing that's not departmentalized in different, in different faculties. All of these things are very, very difficult to understand. And therefore, the statement that's being made by definition of us being physical and and finite and bounded and limited and not having the limitless abilities of God, we don't really understand the essence of Hashem. Let me give you an example. My four-year-old pointed this out to me. He also asks philosophical questions. He, sa- he asks me the following thing. He said, where did you come from? I came from my mommy and my daddy. So, Where did Hashem come from? Where did God come from? No, 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 no. God was here. So he looks at me and he says, well, what is that supposed to mean? Everything comes from something. So where does God come from? And he didn't let me go. Where does God come from? So, to talk about a concept that God exists, He's an absolute existence, He's Kadum, He doesn't come, it's not that He evolved from anything else, but He exists because He exists. Do we know what that means? We don't know what that means. We don't understand what that means. And that's where the beginning of our having to admit our inability to understand comes from. We don't even know where it starts from. If we don't know where it starts from, how can we even make an attempt at defining His essence after it? No, I come from something before me so we can go into the chemistry of mother we can go into the chemistry of father and we can analyze how it came about we can explain the process of how it came about but with Hashem we can't even explain the process how Hashem came about how did he come about we don't even know the process how he came about Do we understand? Let me give you another example. Do we understand how God, who is a spiritual entity and is not physical in any way, makes things happen in a physical world? Where's the connection? Where's the connection? I'm here. This piece of paper is here. I'm physical. The piece of paper is physical. I have energy which is physical. I can reach the piece of paper. But how does Hashem reach something in the physical realms? He's not physical. How does He reach it? So we go with the finger, and you know, we go with logic, and we say, well, if he created it, he could reach it. Good, that's an intellectual understanding, but on a real operative re- level of, of feeling it, and really, you know, really being part of it, we don't understand it. Another example. Let me give you another example. Nothing existed. God brought everything into existence. Right? That's another thing which we have no way of understanding everything that we do, no matter how creative we are, we use resources nobody can walk into his office and tell his boss I made something out of nothing right? it could have been a wonderful idea, but you needed resources you put things together and now they stand, fine, but I made something out of nothing we don't do that but God is, in the principles of Jewish belief, God created the world ex nihilo, from nothingness What's the process that Hashem used? I'd like to do that also. I'd like to create things out of nothing. I'd know a lot of people that would like to create money out of nothing. Just make the dollar bills out of nothing. How do you do it? Do we know the process? No. We know God's responsible for it. But do we know the process? Do we know the steps? Do we know how it comes about? No. So I'm just pointing out to you, I just threw a bunch of examples in a disarray at you just to give you a sense that we really don't know what it's all about. Where did God come from? How does God function? How does God bring things into creation? We really don't know all of these things. So the essence of God, the essence of God, we don't understand. Now, on the other hand, we are living in a world which God made a commitment to. God made a commitment to this world. God wanted a world. God wanted a relationship with man. God says that I'm going to establish a cause and effect with man. A give and take with man. Correct? So, as we move through the world, if we believe in God's involvement in this world and his commitment to the world, we say that the things that are happening is because God is responding to different things and God wants them to happen. Now, when we look at the things that are happening in the world, we begin to give them definitions. We say this particular thing which God made happen is a very compassionate thing. This thing that God made happen seems to show a tremendous amount of annoyance with us on God's part. This particular attribute shows God's tremendous power. This particular thing shows something else. So here we have an interesting thing that we have to make a distinction Knowing God's essence, we can't know. Knowing how God relates to his world, the attributes, how he functions in his world, what, is, what are his responses to the world, His cause and effect, the cause and effect relationship to the world, these things we know. Because God shows them, God has a commitment to them. God shows us shows us those things and that's a tremendous learning process because anything that God shows us though we can't say now since God showed me this I know God I can't say that that I know God in his entirety in his sum total but I know something which is, is, uh, was deemed correct in God's eyes I know something that his wisdom developed I know something that a decision making process which is beyond me created So therefore, when I see different attributes of God, I can can attribute those attributes to God and say that God is revealing certain things to me that are compassion and mercy and power and so on and so forth. These are attributes of God. If if we would want to put put it into a nutshell, I would say it in the following way. The distinction is the essence of God and the will of God. That would be the distinction the essence of God, we can never define. The will of God, what God wants to do, we can define because the things that God wants to do and does in his world are the things that translate themselves as reactions and responses in our world. And in our world, they come over as mercy, compassion, power, judgment, anger, love. They come over in different ways. Everything that we are describing is the will of Hashem at this particular point in time. His will, not His essence. His will, not His essence. Now, so we're making the distinction between will and essence. Okay. Let me give you an example of this. And this is a very complicated example. and This is one of those kinds of things that every question has an answer and the answer begins another question. Let me give you an example of this. Let me give you an example of this. You most probably heard, if you hear from the beginning, that God created the world because he wanted to give. He wanted to bestow of his goodness. So if he wanted to bestow of his goodness, they have to be recipients. They have to be recipients. But there's no world. There are no recipients. And God wants to give. So if God wants to give, so he has to create recipients. So he creates a world. The world then becomes the function of God's desire to give. which is a a whole discussion for itself, which I'm not going to get into exactly what that attitude is about. But there's a major problem with that. Most people that have desires and have wants and strong ones, strong enough to build worlds, strong enough to build a world out of the motivation, are usually deficient until it happens. If somebody wants something very, very badly, until they have it, they're a little nuts. They're a little crazy. I don't have it. I'm going crazy. There's almost a dependency on that which I desire. If we would want to say it uh, more clearly, we would say that the desire is, in a certain extent, in control of me. In control of me. It's 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 demanding something of me. It's it's maddening. It's 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 forcing me. I got to do something about this. And if you analyze it, there are many emotions that we have that really function that way. We might make the choice to let the emotion open up, but once the emotion opens up, very often we respond to the emotion after we've allowed and made the decision that this is the appropriate emotion in this situation. Sometimes we don't even make the conscious decisions about emotions and the emotions just sweep us away. So, But let's get back to God for a minute. So God desires to have a world. Now... We believe that God is perfect. God needs nothing. God is, is not deficient in any way. So how can he need something? How can he desire something? If you desire something, it means that until you get it, you're incomplete in the desire. So if God is perfect, how does God how is God desirous of something and perfect at the same time? If he's desirous of it, until he gets it, he's not complete in that desire. So he's deficient. A major problem. It's a very sticky philosophical problem. But the answer, which is not an answer because we don't understand the answer, but the answer is that God has a will to give. God made a decision that he wants to give. His rutsal was to give. His rutzon is to give, but his rutzon doesn't function like our rutzon. Our rutzon emanates from who we are and what our needs are and what we are missing and what we have to have. It flows from our essence or the absence in our essence. On the other hand, what God does with his world is not coming out of what's missing in God's essence. God's not missing anything. If it would be flowing from his essence, there wouldn't be a world to begin with. He doesn't need a world. It flows from the fact that God makes decisions, his ratzone. He made a decision he wants to give. What is that supposed to mean? It's not his essence. It's not emanating from his essence. He's not controlled by it. It's not demanding. But he makes a decision, I want I want to do something. Even the word want, we can't even use the word want, because want automatically talks about deficiency. On God's part, there was Guzra those are the words that we find in our literature it rose in God's will to do something it's more a question of something that comes out of it's so hard to even describe but this is a perfect example of it if it would would be a description of his essence it would be a description of a deficiency in essence but it can't be it's Ritsono and based on Ritsono now the world begins to function in that way that would be one example of it. All right, so essentially what Lazzaro is saying over here is Rav Meshachayim Lissata is saying that we have to keep two perspectives of God with us at all times. Both. We have to keep the perspective of God of that we cannot define His essence and He is, he is beyond description and He is beyond my ability to totally comprehend and to perceive. And therefore, I cannot judge him because I don't have anything within the realm around me that says, I know... I know God completely and therefore I can know exactly why he made this decision and the extent of this decision and it doesn't make sense and it's wrong and so on and so forth. You would have to be making a claim to infinite wisdom, to infinite who knows how many other things in order to be on an equal par and an equal basis to render a decision about something that God did. We can't do those things. So on the one hand we we talk about a God whose essence is not definable not definable at the same time at the same time though the essence of God is not definable we have the obligation of learning all of the cause and effects and all of the responses of God because that's the part of God that God wants us to know about Him That's what God is saying. This is what I want you to learn. This is what I want you to emulate. This is what I want you to become. This is my involvement with you in order for you to grow. So everything that I reveal to you in terms of characteristics, attributes, responses, I want you to know them and I want you to relate them to me. Don't say that they were coincidences. They come from me. And I will allow you to describe me in adjectives of those actions, but not that they are a definition of the essence. Right? So we have a very equal, a very interesting situation. It's almost a paradox. On the one hand, we have an undefinable God, and we have to remind ourselves that He is undefinable. And at the same time, we have a very definable God, vis-à-vis His his involvement with his world, which we have an obligation to understand, an obligation to inculcate and emulate into our lives, so much so that the prophets and everybody was comfortable to describe God by those attributes, even though they're not a description of his essence, even though they're only a description of his will at this particular point in time. This is the balance. Now, you'll ask me a question, why is that important? let's only define the parts of God which relate to how he reacts in his world why do we have to altogether remind ourselves that God is not definable and the answer to that question is very simple because if we would forget about the aspect of God which is undefinable we would slowly but surely humanize God and judge God in the same way that we would judge any other individual in this world Because in our own minds, we don't live with the distinction of of will and essence. Because in every other situation in our lives, if somebody does something, aha, now I know who you really are, because you did this. And because you did this, and it comes from your essence, I know who you are. In all of our relationships and everything that we do with people, will and essence are, are synonymous. So if we would only relate to God by virtue of His will and not remind ourselves that God, after everything is said and done, is an undefinable, we would slowly but surely define God the same way. His will is, is His essence. And I know Him. And if He gets angry, and if He punishes very, very strongly, He's got a cruel twist to His personality. And He has things that He has to correct. There are things that are not right in his essence. Do you follow what I'm saying? And this is this is unfortunately, has been, is, and unfortunately will be, a trend that when people make attempts at trying to understand God, they don't start off with I can't I can never understand God. I can just try to understand what he's doing. What people start off with is I'm going to try to understand what God's doing. And if I understand what God's doing, so then that's a reflection of His essence. Take it or leave it. But it's a reflection of His essence. And if it doesn't make sense to me, so then I can paint the picture of God, Chas V'Shalom, of being a villain, because the particular thing that He did, in my mind, can only come from an essence which is very cruel, or very uh, not sincere, or very insensitive, or so on and so forth. And I don't need God. I don't need God because if it flows from an essence and I know his essence and this is what his essence is who needs him? And this has unfortunately been I mean there was even a book that was written uh, by supposedly a very famous person uh, God on Trial God on Trial comes God on Trial comes from the attitude that the only things that we define about God are his will, and his will is a reflection of his essence. Now, I'm not answering questions. There are a lot of things that are his will that we don't understand. Why is this his will? But if we constantly remind ourselves that while his will doesn't make any sense to us, or might not make sense to, to us, but it's coming from a God which after everything said and done his essence is not definable to us, we have to stand back and we have to say to ourselves, listen I can't really pass ultimate judgment here. Because even though I don't understand why this will is a legitimate will, but I cannot pass an ultimate judgment because I really don't know the essence of God. Maybe if I understood the essence of God, I would have a better basis of understanding why this is His will. But if I don't understand His essence, how can I really make an ultimate decision about His will? It doesn't make sense to me, I can't comprehend it, but I can't discount the concept of God utterly and entirely simply because I don't understand His will. His will doesn't make sense to me, but His essence, that was, that from which all decisions came to begin with, that I I start off with, not that it doesn't make sense, but that I can't understand it. Something that I can't understand, I can't discount. If it doesn't make sense, it's illogical, it's ridiculous, it's contradictory, that's one thing. But if I start off with, not that it's contradictory and it's illogical and it doesn't make sense, but that it's beyond my grasp. I can't perceive it. I don't understand it. It's it's not in my realm. Maybe it's true, but it's just not in my realm. I don't have the tools to be able to understand that. That you can't discount. If you open up a book written on a very sophisticated sophisticated level of physics and you never even took a general science course, everything is Chinese there. So you can say the book doesn't have any meaning to me and I don't know what to do with this book except throw it in the garbage, but you can't judge the book because the book is beyond your perception. You don't have the tools to understand it, to make the decision about it. And that's why this discussion is somewhat relevant. In Riv Meshachayim Lutzata's times, he wrote this introduction that we should make the distinction between essence and will because in his time, people were putting the two together and humanizing God and making God into a very human form and figure, which led to all four kinds of forms uh, that were contrary to the concept of God and God's oneness. That's why Lizardo read wrote it. But after everything is said and done, Lazada wrote it for the generations and the significance that it has for the generations is that when we... Let's say we're grappling. Let's say we're grappling with something that we don't understand in God's will. And we're trying to muster up a little trust. So we muster up trust from different things. We try to muster up trust from uh, his record in the past. We try to muster up um, uh, trust that many other things that I lived through in my life, while they were happening, I couldn't see any purpose for them, and later I found out that there was, so maybe this will also be something like that. There is a lot of different things that we can apply in terms of experience and other things to try to muster up trust. Another thing in the formula to muster up trust is that we go into it with our ego two pegs lower than where we usually keep it. That after everything is said and done, I'm trying to define something which is beyond my definition. Now, this is contrary. Contrary to the whole uh, scientific attitude that what you can prove is true and what you can't prove is just not true and it doesn't exist. You can't prove it, so it's not, it's not, it doesn't exist. Right? That's, that's the, that's the, the foundation of science. If you can't prove it, it's, 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 inaccept- it's not acceptable. It doesn't exist. It's, it's not a reality if you can't prove it. Judaism doesn't go that way. Judaism says that there are a lot of things that we can't prove, but just because we can't prove them doesn't mean that they don't exist and they're not real. And the, where we start with that is with God. We can't We can't totally and utterly prove God or point and say, I know His total essence. This is what Lazaro is saying. Before we see the text inside, I'll take some questions. This might be a little bit disturbing because we don't like to hear these kinds of things. But uh, I'll take a few questions. You started before. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the names because Rav Kaim Letzte himself doesn't privilege us to the names. I guess he didn't want us to go off and read them. But um, but they were they were written by people that were well intentioned, but but not having the skill and the knowledge, went off and developed a whole a whole shita, <laughs> developed a whole um, a whole belief system that was completely incorrect. And he fought. he dedicated his life. He wrote many works to fight this Kenneth Hashem Tzerachas is one Milchemus Moshe was another he wrote many works to fight this and these works even though we don't have the fight today anymore in that sense but those works we have today because of the because in his fighting the un, the, the falseness the truth comes out more clear in other words by his trying to discount the false ways that these things were perceived we have a, a form of comparison What's the true thing, and what's the untrue thing?
1: Excuse me, what is right is- Jewish
0: in Jewish circles. In Jewish circles. It happens to be that in non-Jewish circles, a lot of the Kabbalistic writings were also taken and misinterpreted. And that's where the, the Christian world got all of the things with monsters and deep fries and heaven and hells and all of the literal things with demons and everything else. All of those things are symbolisms that were written in the, in the mystical literature. They took it literally so there's demons and there's all kinds of different things which were all symbolisms that were written for us for us to have a way of comprehending concepts yeah
1: um, <coughs> maybe it's very off the track maybe coming afterwards but if if, if uh, an obligation if you have an obligation not to the then how does one go about teaching children on a very fundamentally basic level what's really going on Alluded to son. I mean, I know, uh, okay. The, the a book on I mean, is that the, bottom line? Or the beginning or
0: something. Well, you you wouldn't go wrong with uh, whatever that the Rambam wrote, but I, I would dare say that um, that even to children uh, while we have to talk about very realistic and very human kind of interaction between god and man and that's not only for children, it's for us also, because we have a tendency, if we don't humanize God, that, that God becomes a non-real thing for me. I'll give you some examples of that. But at the same time, exposing a child to, to concepts of God that he doesn't necessarily understand, but that he's exposed to them. For instance, God is everywhere, okay? That is not a humanization of God. Human beings can only be in one place. So to to not tell a child that God is everywhere because the child won't be able to understand it is a mistake in Chinuch. Right? Now, um, a child can understand sometimes better than an adult can, not necessarily on an intellectual level but on an intuitive level or an emotional level that God can be everywhere. In, in sense of connection, and in, in sense of looking, and sense of worrying, and sense of concern, a child can perceive those things. Really, the concept God is everywhere is a much deeper concept than that. God is everywhere means that everything that was created is really connected to God and is an end result of the, But the parts of um, but the parts of God is everywhere that the person that the child can integrate and do something with. The child should know those things, even though uh, Yankee went away without understanding where God comes from. But that doesn't matter. The child can know that. The child has to know both parts of it. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Maybe this is going off a little bit about the humanizing part of God. I'll give you an example. We talk about uh, the undefinable God, the great God, the almighty, and everything else about God. I'll show you how there's such a danger in relating to an undefinable God. I'll show you how that, how, very clearly. (laughs) Most, very often, when I try to explain to an individual that everything that we would expect from another person in a relationship or every, anything that we would expect to give to another person in a relationship is true in our relationship with God. Most people look at me like I'm funny. People we have relationships with. God we have duties and obligations with. But it's really not true. It's really not true. And this is where... We've, we we uh, we suffer when we make God in, in, into an undefinable. Let me let me give let me give an example of this. It says in the Gemara in it says in the Gemara in that when when the Jews assemble in in houses of prayer in shuls, and they say Amen Yehi Shmei Rabbah, they say Amen Yehi Shmei Rabbah, so God cries. Why does God cry? So the Gemara says that God cries and says the following thing Woe unto a father that had to chase his children away from the table, and woe unto children that were chased away from their father's table. And every time that man is making an attempt at rebuilding the relationship with God, this brings tremendous feelings of what the relationship was once. And hence, God cries. Okay now God doesn't have tears and God doesn't have tear ducts and God doesn't have eyes the way we have eyes right but the point of this being is that the only way that we can comprehend that God is really interested in us is a father crying I feel so bad that I had to take chase my children away from the table that's the only way that we can grasp it it's that and a hundredfold more the pain that Hashem has. That's what's being lost in the relationship. Those are definitions that come out of the humanizing of God, which are critical. The person that never thinks that God has feelings will never really be able to have a real relationship with God. Because if God doesn't really have feelings, so then he doesn't really feel about me. If he doesn't feel about me, how can I feel about him? When was the last time you had a relationship with a person that was a real healthy one where you knew from the start that the other person had absolutely no feelings towards you? Right? But you're gonna have lots of feelings towards the person. When, when was the last time that you had a, a, a continuing healthy relationship? Obviously it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. By the, by only defining God as that great thing that gives me all of my obligations and all of my duties, and not seeing the, the, the personalization, the humanization of it, there's no way for man to function. At the same time, even though that's so critical and so important, we have to realize that there's an aspect of God that's beyond my comprehension as much as there's a relationship and as much as God cares and as much as God is involved and as much as we can be together, I still don't understand his essence. One thing is not a contradiction with the other. And both are important. If we don't have both, then we get a, uh, an imbalance. Yes? You mentioned judging another person. I was just wondering, that attribute,
1: I don't know
0: Can you just caught me again because I didn't I don't remember in what context I said it. I have a very poor memory.
1: You were talking about a different attribution and something about like judging another person. I'm might be not the offense being that but I just wonder within Jewish ethics
0: something like Okay. Okay. No, it's it's a good question, and I invite you to the Thursday night lecture series in Lindbrook where we're dealing with the whole thing about personality development. But uh, to answer it briefly, there is a distinction between defining and judging. Okay, uh, th- um, I can define something that another person is doing, and by the power of deduction understand that it's coming from certain things within the person. I can define the person. I, to, the ability, to the extent that I know the person, I can define the person. There are limitations even in defining a person because I don't necessarily know everything that I need to know that might have been responsible for his behavior. But I can make it a, an attempt at defining the person. Judging the person is a different ball game. Judging the person means the person was right in doing this, the person was wrong in doing this, that's a little bit more that's much more difficult for a person for a person to say you know there are certain things that are clear cut that are right and they're wrong a person goes over to another person and murders the other person so you judge the person and you say that the person did something bad i don't think you have a problem with judging the person right but things that are not clear cut as right and wrongs we can't judge the right and the wrong of it but we can judge the, we can give a definition to it. I can say that this kind of behavior comes from this kind of an individual. But is it his fault that he's this kind of an individual? Maybe not. And if it's not his fault, how can you be judging him in, in, in the sense that you are wrong and you deserve to be punished or anything like that? Because the definition might be correct, but the responsibility for being what he is and doing what he is, you are not necessarily the judge of. So that would be a fear in a general way. That would be a fear way of uh, of separating the issues.
1: Yeah. Can you see the essence of a human being? If man and God are. If man is created in the image of God, then we have certain. We're like him in many ways, but him. That's an,
0: ex- that's an excellent question. That's an excellent question, and I'll deal with it in two parts. The truth of the matter is that a man can't really see the essence of another human being either in entirety. Can't. Not, not, not only can't another person see it on me or I on the other person, but a person can't even see it on himself. Can't really define the essence of who they are themselves. We are in constant process of growth and as we grow we discover things that we never knew were parts of us. Certainly spiritually this is very very true that as we grow and as we ascend the ladder spiritually we come to realize that we had capabilities and insights and contacts and strengths that we never knew that we had before. Right? So we are in constant process of discovering ourselves as well. We're not only in process of discovering God. We're in process of discovering ourselves and very often by discovering ourselves we come to discover the God that created us as well. So, in a certain sense, you're completely right. You're completely right. But, so where's the distinction between defining the essence of God and the defining the essence of man? The distinction is in this. Our behaviors come out of the actualized part of our essence not out of the potential part of our essence. Most of our behavior is a product of the part of us that has become actualized. The parts of us that we don't even know exist and that we're not in contact with are not the things in a primary way that are responsible for our behaviors. What is res- Let's say a person really deep, deep down has the, uh, um, a tremendous capacity to give and to be gracious. But he happens to be a person with a tremendous temper, tremendous temper that comes from ego. Let's say, okay. So because he has a tremendous temper that comes from ego, he's usually not giving the other person anything gracious besides um, a slap in the face out of anger. All right. Now, his behavior is not is not being dictated by his potential that he hasn't yet found, but it's being dictated by his actualized. Right? That's the human being. And therefore, when I am presented with another person's behavior, for all intents purposes, I, ha- I can define this behavior comes from this kind of an essence. Is it the entirety of the, is his essence? No. But it's the part of his essence that is real today, that is actualized today. That's with our defining the human being. But when we have to make an attempt at defining the actions of God... Right? the actions of God, the actions of God come from everything that God is, from his unlimited, his unlimited wisdom, his unlimited compassion, his unlimited power, his unlimited discipline. It's a product of the totality of God, which we cannot define. That's where the difference lies. Okay? In man, the, his behavior is the product of the actualized part of his essence the unactualized part of his essence is a part of him but it's not realistic in terms of his behavior today but by God those were the words of Lazaro Lazaro said that God reveals himself in many different attributes and I want you to know that they all come <laughs> from the depth of his wisdom from the that which we can't even grasp from the undefinables the, 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 and, that's weird, and that's obviously a tremendous difference that's that. That's where the difference lies yes so
1: then how do we make the distinction between not understanding a Kodesh Kodesh Hashem because because of our limitations in understanding his essence and because we're we're no gay like our stuff is standing in the way
0: <coughs> how do we make that distinction that's a good question <clears throat> can you restate the question for some people to laugh? Okay. okay, I'll restate the question. How can man um, properly link his inability to understand something that God does if it's, co- it's coming from that part of the undefinable of God or maybe it's really a definable part of of conduct but uh, it's my own particular limitations because of where I'm at or that I don't want to see or I want to rationalize or any other thing that's holding me back from defining it. <clears throat> What I would say, what I would say in response to that, would be the, the following. You know, when we try to define something that God does, right, we have to work with certain criteria. Any kind of uh, a definition that we give has to have certain tools of definition. The example that I gave in the, one of the very first classes of Lozado: right, a person goes into a job and the, he's hired on a probational basis. At the end of the probational period of time, the boss calls in the person and says, you're not for the job, goodbye, without any explanations. Okay? I can stalk off, angry as all, you know what, and, and say that he's unjustified, and so on and so forth. Okay. Now, if I do say such a thing, I have to be able to support the statement by saying the following, I know what the job is, I know exactly what the company needs, I know that I have the capability of doing it and I've proven that I've had the capability of doing it, and being that all of those things are in place, job description, job definition, capability to do, following through and getting it done, if he fired me now, it was unjustified. But there were criteria. I knew what the job was, I knew my ability to do the job, and I was able to prove that I did the job. Okay. Now, when it comes to trying to define a conduct of God with myself, which are the hardest ones to define, with other people we are very easy to define them, but with ourselves they're difficult to define. The first thing that we have to ask ourselves is, I might have a list of criteria that I wrote up For what I believe I should have in life, and why I should have it in life, and why that's the only right thing for me in life. But is the list of criteria that I have written up in trying to understand the will of God, does that match the criteria that God has established in his expectation of me? This is the very tricky area. In other words, a person has to try to analyze for himself, not what he feels is right for him, And what his criteria are for getting it. But he has to ask himself, what would, what would God's criteria be for me to have or not to have this? And have I fulfilled that which would be God's criteria in making the decision? You can't apply your criteria. You're not the one that's giving yourself. God is giving you. You have to understand God's criteria. You can ask why that's God's criteria. But you have to first know what the criteria is. You can contest and try to attempt to understand what the criteria is, but you have to understand what the criteria is. Now, assuming that we know the criteria, assuming that we know the criteria by which God makes a decision, and then something happens to me that does not follow that criteria, then I must stand back in what I alluded to before and uh, make the steps of trust and say, I'm limited in my perception of the essence of Hashem, right? But it's only at that point that I should do that. If, for instance, I say to myself, um, I deserve to have $100,000 this year. Why? Because I th- because I was born, I deserve $100,000 this year. I didn't do a darn good thing in the last three years, but I think that if I was born, I deserve $100,000. And if I don't get it, I don't understand the will of God. It must be the undefinable essence of God. I'm I'm saying it simplistically. That's ridiculous. I dare say, and I'm really not trying to provoke anything, but many of the things that we live through in our lives, we don't go through that first step in the process of asking what's God's criteria. We ask ourselves, what's my criteria for having? We don't ask ourselves, what's God's criteria? Right? If we do ask ourselves what's God's criteria, and 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 it seems that we are falling into that category, then it's a different story. Then we have a, uh, then we have then we're up against something which we don't understand. But we have the reservoir of trust that God has an unlimited amount of wisdom beyond anything that I can comprehend. So how can the limited understand the unlimited wisdom? I can't understand it. Does that mean that I can reject it? I can't reject it. If it's wisdom, but it's not in my it's not in my uh, access to be able to appreciate it, I can't reject it. It's very frustrating because now I have to develop a relationship that's not built on understanding but is built on trust. That's a challenging thing. But th- that's the way I would answer the question. Have we fi- fulfilled have we fulfilled the criteria? I'll give you an example. Somebody came to me a couple of days ago. Who um, went through, okay, went through three or four, I don't remember anymore, three or four terribly disappointing relationships where a relationship was begun with a person and then she was deemed inadequate she's inadequate because she, she's not observant enough she's inadequate because even if she's observant but she comes from a funny family background and she had this happen to her 3-4 times 3-4 three, three, different times in all kinds of different weird twists and the message that came out of each one was that were she to go to more observant circles to find her partner she wasn't good enough were she to go were she to go to less observant, she was the ortho. She was too she was too firm. Right? And she found herself in that maddening place of not being good for anybody. Right? Now, as each one of these circumstances occurred, right, she was dealt she was dealt very rough stuff. She was treated uh, in very coarse ways. Uh, a, uh, a parent gets on the phone. My son, marry you. You're blank, 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 blank. I don't want to ever see you again, and so on and so forth. Okay, and this happened. So in other words, even if she was not compatible, and even though I, you know, I was able to prove to her that those weren't for her anyway, but she, in each circumstance, she got more than she quote unquote deserved. Okay. So here she's standing, obviously at a later age in life, not married yet, and terribly frustrated, terribly frustrated. And she wants to know what's her next step. So here is where I would begin um, using, you know, let's make an practical application of what I spoke about, the criteria. okay Now, there's no question that in each and every circumstance that she lived through, she was dealt with in the process in an unjustifiable way. and she was hurt unjustifiably. Even if something's not right, there are different ways of dealing with it. So she definitely was dealt unjustifiably by the other person. Now and while going through it, a person can be fall apart from something like that. A person become immobilized from something like that unquestionably, But the question is that after one has created a certain amount of time and distance from the event and I have to get on with my life there are two ways that I can go now. One way that I can go is I can say to myself because I was dealt an unjustifiable blow to heck with all of these people and reject the whole idea of marriage or reject the idea of marriage to a Jew or so on and so forth. Go into... Uh rebellion. and to a certain extent it's it's very it's very understandable because she, there were, there are legitimate feelings of being hurt there, and for the legitimate feelings of being hurt, one would react that way. But being that there is time and distance from those things, a person now has to ask themselves what they did to me was wrong. And they're going to have to answer for it. They made poor choices, they said the wrong things, and they're going to have to answer either now or after 120. They're going to have to answer for every single word that became a dagger of death. They'll have to answer for it all. But what a person has to ask themselves is, whatever they did wrong, but why did Hashem expose me to that kind of a person? Why was I exposed to such an experience? That's a, more, that was, that's a much greater focus. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, the more limited focus is I was in a situation, I had legitimate feelings that were trampled and denied, and therefore, because of the, that, that focus, I will react in a certain way. I will react in a certain way. That is moving ahead in life with one's own criteria. Yeah. With one's own. My criteria is, I'm a human being, I deserve to be dealt with like a human being, and if I'm not, to heck with it all. That's my own criteria. But a Jew has to be much broader than only making decisions, even when they're difficult decisions, only with his own criteria. He has to be able to include God's criteria. And then the question that has to be asked is, why did, even if that person made the mistake. Why was I presented with that kind of a thing and not once but twice and three times and four times? Is there some kind of a message that's being told to me in spite of the fact that they're wrong? That is already an example of trying to extend oneself out to using God's criteria. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? In my own criteria, I can say... It's a very funny thing. I use my own criteria. It's wrong. I was dealt wrong. To heck with everything, including Hashem, God forbid. So I use my own criteria, and then I dismiss God that I never even included in the criteria. However, if I, to begin with, include God in as the criteria, then it's a different story. And I suggested to this person... I suggested to this person that maybe God's expecting more from her. Maybe if everybody's telling her that she's neither here nor there, that she has to really examine that that statement. King David said, that when my enemies stood up against me and they were lodging all kinds of insults at me, I listened. They're my enemies, they don't have my good intentions in mind but maybe there's a if they're saying it to me they're saying it to me and God has allowed them to hurt me in that way I have to extend myself beyond my own emotional criteria and deal with the greater criteria of how does God fit into what's going on do, do, do you follow what I'm saying and that's a very very critical thing in life it's, it's a major major transition but it, it's very very helpful it's very helpful it's not it's not a burdensome thing. if anything it makes life much more manageable because we're putting all of the parts of life that do play a role into 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 it. We're not excluding something that really belongs. God is part of it and there is a criteria that God establishes. Yeah, Phyllis. I don't know if you hear something from a lot of people that is or or something that you're just hearing from the book. <clears throat> good question and you always ask me the question that has always the same answer alright <laughs> I, um, I must tell you I must tell you that before she came to, to the office she was working with the formula that they were all wrong okay all wrong and she was right and that therefore she was giving up on the whole thing altogether completely and it didn't only mean marriage it meant Yiddishkeit too it meant everything that's what she walked in with but going into her background and asking her about her background and how how she was exposed to Judaism and what she did and what she didn't do and why she did and why she didn't do which i got a very uh, a very good working idea of before she told me about the particular problem i felt reasonably sure i felt reasonably sure that she that she could have been a lot more and that she knew it herself, that she could have been a lot more. But that she was blocking that out with the rationalization that she was entitled to feel bad for herself. You can sense that. When a person comes, you can sense when they're doing that and when they're not doing that, and when they're open to that, when they're not open to that. That's something that you can sense in, in counseling. And uh, it, she left with a lot to think about, but and and not necessarily digesting it all yet, but but she something that we sometimes use because we don't want to look at everything, right, was what she was going home to start dealing with, right? and uh, it's it's very hard sometimes for us to do it ourselves because we try to fool ourselves and protect ourselves, but in asking and and uh, getting a good uh, describing the condition to another person. That usually is helpful. Okay.
1: Um, there's a very basic premise that keeps coming up that... Uh, that um, bugs I, you? Yeah.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: Um, this idea that uh, why were really creative, that Hashem wants to be so good and that's why man and that's why man is creative. I know somehow, after all of these classes and everything I've like read, I just don't know. Where did that come from? Where did
0: that idea come from? How do we know it? How do we know it? Is? Okay. There are most probably many, many sources to it. But if I would want to point to one particular source uh, very early on in, uh, in the Chumash, if I could use that as a source... Yeah. Um, no, sometimes I have a problem if I could use the Chumash as a source. Who says that the Chumash comes from Hashem? But, but uh, uh, in the Chumash, when after the first ten generations of of destruction, uh, after the first ten, ten generations of the world, and Hashem is looking at a world that has not lived up to what God created the world for, God is making a decision about the destruction of the world, the generation of the flood. When one looks at how God makes the decision, the way it's described in the Chumash, let me read for you the words of the Chumash, paraphrase the words at least. And God thought over about why He had created man. Now what's disappointment, sadness. Now, where does disappointment come from? Where does sadness come from? Sadness comes from, in other words, I wanted it to be good. I wanted it to be good, and it's not working out good. This is one place. This is one place where we see... Uh, a but
1: He wanted man to be good. I mean, that means he wanted man to be good. But man wasn't good. I mean it, Hashem was watching the behavior of man, No, in that text it, in that
0: text that's not really directed to the wanted
1: to bestow goodness upon man.
0: I mean where does it say he wants to bestow goodness upon the side of 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 the side the world he's not talking about man But of the he the the creation. The creation he felt bad about the whole world that he created as a resource for man and and it's being spoiled the Medrash, for instance says the Midrash says that when God put man into in Ghanadan God said to man um, look at this palace that I built for you make sure not to not to ruin what I made for you <laughs> That's another place. There are there are many other places where it says it much more specifically in the Chumash. I can't, you know, knock it off, right? Uh, it's just
1: something that just, uh, it just seems so <coughs> simplistic. Why was man created so that God could be so good? I mean, do you, do you expect me to tell someone who's not from that answer why they were created and for them to really believe that?
0: I mean, the the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is that the, um, that the reason for creation, the reason for creation is really beyond us. okay? Because think of it for a moment. think, th- think, think of it for a moment. Right? But the point is that not every question has to have an answer. That's, that's, that's the real underlying point. Think of it for a minute. You tell a person that God created the world because he wanted to bestow of his goodness. So now let's go further. Why did God want to bestow of his goodness? Let's take the question further because God is good and the nature of good is that it wants to bestow of its goodness. But God is not forced into anything. So even if the nature of good is to bestow goodness, but God's not forced to. So there still had to be a will. Why was there a will? So you still remain with the question. The question why the world was created is really one of the questions that we really don't have an answer that we understand. That's the truth. Right. No, that's He's the truth. No, that's time. the truth. We don't really have an answer. But on a functional level, once the world was here, what was the commitment in his creation of the world? Okay, if we would want to rephrase it that way. What is the, what is the um, in other words, the person that says, since I don't know why God created the world, so I can forget about God. That doesn't necessarily follow logically because even if I don't know why God created the world, but if I know that there's a statement of a certain commitment by virtue of the fact that the world was created and God has certain hopes, then I have, then I have to lend a listening ear to that. The fact that I don't know the reason why the world was created doesn't necessarily dismiss me from dealing with God. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? Just because I don't know what the, the the bottom reason why God created the world. So that dismisses me from I mean, I don't understand why God created the world, so therefore I don't have to have anything to do with a God that I didn't understand why he did it. That's not logical. If we don't
1: know why God created the world, then to the Okay. Why okay. Am I here? Because, why am I here? because even
0: if we don't know the, the ultimate why of why God created the world but we know that once there is a fact that God made a commitment to the world, we know that God wanted the world to function in a certain way. That we know. We don't know why it was His will, but we know what His will is. Do you follow what I'm saying? From
1: Torah? Yes. Okay, From that's Torah. what I was yeah, saying. Yeah,
0: sure. Yes.
1: Okay, then you a
0: parent tells you to do something and you don't know the reason why, but has told you very definitely to do it. So I'll say, well, I don't, in today's times it's a lousy example, but I don't know the reason, so if I don't know the reason, I don't have to relate to it. That's not, that's, that's not true, because so I don't know the reason, I don't have to relate to the will. On a functional level, the will tells me that God wanted us to be fulfilled in certain ways, to be happy in certain ways, to receive in certain ways, and that, and that became the formula of the dictates of what God told us to do.
1: So then, if we want—getting back to um, her question—if we want really to know God, and we all somehow have a yearning and desire to want to know God, to get close to God, then wouldn't you say, that what you're saying, that the only way that that's possible to really know God—not to fool ourselves into thinking that we know what God is and who God is—is is that we have to conform our own will to God's will and the only way to do that is to really learn permission Hazal and Absolutely to really get ourselves on that zero to understand 100% it.
0: Absolutely. Because
1: until we're able to think that will there's no way we could even begin to I mean we're just fooling ourselves.
0: You're right. I must say you're right. You're definitely right. I mean one of the examples one of the examples that I um, one of the examples that uh, I gave I think I shared this with you the story about the uh, uh, about the the king who married uh, and then the princess uh, went against God's uh, went against the king's will and the king went away Did I tell you that story? No. So let me tell you that story because that re- relates very very directly to what you just said now. The Medrash tells, tells a story about a king who uh, fell in love with a princess, married her promised to the world, and then she went off and she did certain things which were very negative things. So he picked himself up, packed his bags, and left. And uh, for an undefinable amount of time. In the midst of his being gone, the neighbors came in and said you might as well give up, he's not coming back, you might as well uh, sell the estate and go marry somebody else, and you know, waiting around here is ridiculous. So uh, she was about to accept this you know and every time that she was pressured into feeling this way she used to go and she used to reread all of the promises and all of the commitments that her husband had made to her and this gave her uh, a certain sense gave her a certain sense that he would be back that there was an undying love there so, what? so the so the Medrish says that in in the end the king did come back in the end the king did come back and uh, the king's first question was, how did you wait for me so long? And she, her answer was, I was surprised at myself, but it was the words and the promises that you made that gave me a sense of an undying love. So the Madras says in the same way, we were wed to God, and then we did things which were wrong, and God seemingly left, and the nations of the world would like us to believe that he's not coming back, and try to persuade us that we should just take on the ways of the world and forget about this relationship with God. And then we go into our houses of prayer and our houses of learning and we read and we study what it says there and we get a sense that God's going to be back, that there's an undying love. That's what that's what the, the Medrash says. And in the end, when God will come back, God is going. To, the first question that God's going to ask us is, how did you wait for me so long? And the answer will be, if it wouldn't have been for the Torah, that between the lines talks of that that undying love and commitment for man, we would never have been able to make it. That's why it says that in Mitzrayim, when Moses came, when Moshe came and said that the, that it's time to be redeemed, it's time to go out, it says, velo shamuel Moshe, they didn't listen to Moshe, mikotzer Ruach, because they had a shortness of breath. So literally it means that they were so overworked that they just couldn't absorb that kind of a thing it was too unbelievable the Arachayim says because we're talking about a Jewish people before the receiving of Torah before the receiving of Torah those things are not able to in the midst of agony in the midst of suffering to be able to believe that God loves us is impossible without Torah they didn't have a connection to Torah so they didn't have that message of undying love which is, again, exactly exactly what you're talking about. And in a certain sense, even if you're not talking about crisis and tragedy of, of communal proportions, but we have our own disappointments in our own lives, and sometimes we can't reconcile those things without being nurtured with a sense of Hashem's concern and love for us, which comes through Taira. Absolutely. The people that came out of the Holocaust Non-believing were not the people that were the scholars of Torah. The ones that came out non-believing were the ones that were not deeply st- steeped in the knowledge of Torah. That's that's documented fact. So that that in other words, there's a certain nurturing of a connection to God that comes through the Torah. The reasons for this is a very are very intricate. Because our nishamas are rooted in the taira. And our I connection have that question. comes to this.
1: I have that question also. You said um, when you die you can't um yeah. you know, to help with the nishama. So um, if the nishama can stay when you're dead, everything in the room according to the Gemara. It's halacha. It's halacha.
0: Yeah. No, it's not just, you know, in the, in thought okay. it's, 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 it's
1: because of that, right. then um, it also knows. Obviously, it has emotions, and it knows them. Right. Now, when an comes into our, or is bound let's say, by a physical body. Um, you said we don't know things, we learn things, but the nishama was there before the physical body was there it was created a long time ago and doesn't it come into the body already knowing something? Ah, Is it the Torah talking about? The
0: okay, it's, an o- it's a marvelous question, I love these questions because they allow me to talk about things that I want to talk about. No, but it's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. Um, the Gemara says, the question of a wise person within the question is half the answer. And you did answer your own question. Um, the Neshama, before it comes into this world to begin with, the Medrash says very interesting things about the Neshama. The Neshama has tremendous knowledge of Hashem before it comes into the into the physical body so much so that the Gemara says that in the nine months of pregnancy a Malach learns with the with the child that's developing in the mother's womb kol rakula, the entire Torah the entire Torah now the Gemara says that when the Neshama comes into this world, it's a lowering for the Neshama, having to come into the physical world, the world of limitation bound up with the physical. There's a lowering. In fact, Hashem says when Hashem sends the neshama into this world, when it reaches the world, when it's born, Hashem says, L'chi make yourself small. In other words, constrain all of that actualized energy into a potential. Not destroy it, but make it into a potential energy. L'chi and then that becomes, make yourself small. In other words, constrain your energy the symptom of the neshama, yes. And it comes into the body of the person. Now, in fact, the, the, um, one one of the commentaries says very eloquently that um, the, the, we know the, the tradition that the malach makes a mark on the lip of the person which is the mark of forgetful, of forgetting everything that it learnt. If one looks carefully in the Gemara, the Gemara says, Okay, the Gemara says that when the person is yaitza la'avir ha'olam, when the baby hit, hits the oxygen of the world, that's when the shikha that's when the forget the forgetting comes into being. The exposure at that moment to the to the physical world creates a shikha It creates a, a distance from all of that spiritual knowledge. We talk uh, all of the new modern ways of bringing children into the world, and we talk about how the old techniques are so trauma-ridden, uh, with the lights and the noises and everything else, and everything else. Yes, birth is a trauma; it's a trauma for the spirituality that the neshama was always in connection with before before it came into the world. But the question that comes up is if it's all forgotten the moment the child comes into the world so what's the re- what's the purpose of it all? it's all lost but the answer is very simple, the answer is that it's not lost, the answer is that it's all there, there it's covered by the physical world, it's concealed by the physical world, but it's all there according to the Svas Emis, when we say in the Amida prayer every day three times a day Hashiveinu avinu return us to your Torah so we most probably think, oh, um, it means that I didn't listen to the Torah and I'm asking God to help me do tshuv and to return to the Torah. You know what the Tzvass says? The Tzvass says, Hashiveinu avinu return me to the Torah that I learned in my mother's womb. Hashiveinu avinu in other words, return me to be totally connected the way that my neshama is begging to be connected. So, and I alluded to this before when I said that human behavior is a product of his actualized part, not of his potential part. But I said in certain measures. In certain measures it's not. In certain measures the human behavior is a product of his potential as well. Because the fact that there is such tremendous potential begs for its expression. When a a Yid says, I want to learn Torah, it comes from the fact that he learned Torah. So even the potential plays a role in the behavior of a person, which is altogether a a fascinating discussion. A lot of spiritual frustration that we have comes from the fact that our Nishamas learned Torah and are so distant from Torah. And that's what creates the frustration. Had we never learned the Torah, we wouldn't be so frustrated. But being that we learned it, and now we're living in some kind of a strange, alien environment that creates the frustration that very often leads us back to make the request of Hashiveinu Avino. Yes?
1: So,
0: like, what year did this uh, live? Okay. Lozado lived... Okay. Um, I'm not sure if he was born in the very, very late uh, 1600s, but... Um, his the period of time in which he wrote he lived a very short life but the period within which he lived was the early 1700s corresponding uh he was just before